Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel 37. If you have ever heard messages from the book of Ezekiel, it is likely that you heard mess- a message from this chapter. There are a few chapters in Ezekiel that get preached. This chapter is one of the few. The dry bones. It's a tremendous passage of Scripture and I'm excited to preach it to you this evening. I'm excited for us to go through it. We as believers hinge our entire faith upon the reality that the dead can be brought back to life by an Almighty God. We saw in the Old Testament a few examples of such things. We see in the New Testament through our Lord Jesus Christ greater examples. Martha in John chapter 12 is weeping over the death of her brother Lazarus. Jesus comes and Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As they continue through the conversation, Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus promised in John chapter 2, we saw it this morning in Sunday school. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Speaking of the temple of his body. We had Easter, Resurrection Sunday, just last week. A day where we focused upon the reality that He is not dead. He is risen, as He said. And we spoke specifically that the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead, the dead becoming alive, is the very foundation of our hope. It's the very foundation of what we are as believers. It's the very motivation that sets us upon the path that we're running that we talked about this morning. We know that the end goal will be life. God is in the business of taking that which was dead and making it alive. The Scriptures tell us that in Adam all died. So in Christ shall all be made alive. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins until such time as we receive the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the Scriptures tell us that God livens our spirit, makes us alive. The the King James uses the word quickens us. So that where we once were dead in our trespasses and sins, now we are alive unto Christ. Many of these analogies will come to play this evening in Ezekiel 37 as Ezekiel visits the valley of dry bones. Look with me if you would in Ezekiel 37 beginning in verse 1. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. The circumstance we see in these verses is very similar to that which we observed in Ezekiel 8. Perhaps you might recall in that passage, Ezekiel is taken by the hair. It says that he saw what looked like a hand coming from heaven, took him by the hair, lifted him up by the locks of his hair, and set him down in the temple in Jerusalem. And there he saw the vision of the temple in Jerusalem. He saw all of the apostasies, all of the wickedness of the leaders of the princes in Jerusalem. Israel. We could debate whether or not that vision and this vision were physical, where God physically uprooted Ezekiel and took him in uh, body to these places. Uh, I mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 8 that it seems unlikely that he did so. The scriptures make it very clear that he was carried in the Spirit. And in this passage, it says, He carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord 
and set me down in the midst of the valley. Most likely we are, we are talking about visions, but I'm not going to argue with someone that says the Lord physically took Ezekiel. He certainly could have. Um, I'm just not necessarily, I don't, I think the wordage doesn't necessarily convince me of that fact. And the Spirit of the Lord took him and placed him into a valley of dry bones. Verse 2 describes them as very dry. We're familiar with what happens to bones when they're left out in the sun, when they're left to cook, as you would uh, perhaps say. Uh, They become dry. They become brittle. Such were the bones in this valley. There was nothing left in them. They were not soft. They were not supple. These were not bodies that had just died. These were bodies that had died, rotted, decayed, and their bones were left out there to dry. They were brittle. They were hard. They were lifeless. Everything. They were dead. It was a valley of dead, dry bones. And in verse 3, God asks a question. Look at it with me. He said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, Thou knowest. From the perspective of reason and understanding, the answer to God's question is no. No, bones that are dried and brittle cannot once again become a living creature. These bones have lost their capacity for sustaining life. The marrow is dried. Everything about them is irrecoverable. They're dead. But this is not Ezekiel's response, is it? Ezekiel responds by saying, Oh Lord, God, Thou knowest. See, when we're dealing with God, the simple answer, or we might say the humanly obvious answer, is not always the correct answer, is it? The humanly obvious is not always the divine. Because God's ways are higher than our own. Because God's ways are greater than our own. Because God is a God of miraculous ability. That which is impossible to a man is indeed possible with God. And that's the point of God's question here. That it is absolutely reasonable to assume that these bones, which are dead and dried and brittle, shall never live again. But Ezekiel has built his entire ministry upon things that are absurd. Has he not? His entire prophetic ministry has been built upon absurd signs and wonders. Things that are really meant to get people's attention. Things that caused him or required of him a level of faith and devotion to the Word of God that perhaps we've never known. Perhaps you recall the devotion of Ezekiel as God told him, you will not mourn for your wife because she's going to die this evening. And the faith that Ezekiel must have had to not mourn his wife The desire of his eye, God called her, when the Lord took her life as a sign unto Israel. Think of Ezekiel's devotion as he laid upon his side for hundreds of days as a sign to Israel. Think of Ezekiel's devotion as he shaved his head, as he made the defiled bread. All of these signs that he had to do in obedience to the word of the Lord Trusting the word of the Lord. And now God says, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, God, you know. You know whether they can live or not. Who am I to tell you? And God tells him in verse 4, prophesy unto these bones. Say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. See that word here in the Hebrew is the word shama. It's a fairly well-known word. As a matter of fact, there's even a passage of Scripture in the uh, Jewish um, culture that they call the Shama passage, and we in theology call the Shama passage. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. We call it the Shama passage. It begins, Shama Yitzrael, hear Israel. These bones are being called upon by Ezekiel 
at the command of God, to pay attention to the command of Jehovah God, to listen. Do you think they'll listen? They'll listen. There is nothing in creation that doesn't, except for man. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and I will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. This was the command that God gave to these bones. God tells the bones that they will again receive the breath of life. They will receive flesh. They will receive skin. That word sinews is literally that idea of tissue. God says, your bones, bones, you will live again and you'll have tissue. And then you'll have muscle, flesh. And then you'll have skin. All of those elements that make up the human composition, the tissue and the, and the muscle and the, the fat and the skin, God says you're going to get it all back. The dead bones will be made into living things once again. And God says that on that day, the bones that live shall know that He is the Lord. Why do bones need to know that He's the Lord? We'll find out in just a moment why bones will need to know that He is the Lord. Look at verse 7. So I prophesied, Ezekiel says, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them above, there was no breath in them. While human reason and experience would never expect dead, dry bones to come to life, an understanding of our God means we should expect that these bones would indeed obey the word of the Lord and they do. These bones which had been dry and dead began to shake and rattle And then they came together, bone upon bone, all the bones in their place. And then upon these bones grew the tendons and the muscles and the fat. And then they were covered with skin so that as Ezekiel stood there following his prophecy, he saw a pile of bones become human in shape. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Talk today about your little operation kit and your, your little freaky baby that, that has all of the half open, half closed, half organs, half not, as, as, so that you can learn all of these different organs. Could you imagine visually watching as bones reconstituted into a human form? What an interesting thing that would be. But you know, they were fully formed now, but not alive. They had flesh and bone, but a body is not just flesh and bone, is it? Our, our bodies are only a vessel. This is only the vehicle through which we live. Do you know that you are not your body? Young ladies, that's an important concept for you to understand. That you as a person are more than what is external. I say young ladies because our society pushes the idea that women are not much more than how they look. Do you know that, how you, that, that this body that we have is not really us? All of the tissue and the muscle and the skin came upon these dry bones and yet, Ezekiel said, all of that came and yet they laid there lifeless. They were still not alive. Certainly we all have bodies which will be around after we are dead. The difference between a dead man and a live man is the presence or the absence of his spirit. That immaterial part of a man. We see this demonstrated all the way back in the first man. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Okay, so he formed a body. And then it says, And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. See, man was, is a man because he is a living soul, not a living body, except to the degree that the body is the vehicle for the soul. We could get into a debate about um, whether or not the soul and the spirit are different or whether they are the same. If you only believe in a body and a soul, you're what's called a dichotomist. If you believe in a body, a soul, and a spirit, you are what's called a trichotomist. 
In other words, there's either two parts to man or there's three parts to man. The many versions uh, of the scriptures and um, the scriptures as a whole do seem to use the spirit and the soul interchangeably. However, we don't have time for it tonight, but I would argue that indeed um, we do see precedent for the reality that we are body, soul, and spirit, that we are three um, made in the image of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are indeed as well, as we could say, three persons. We are body, soul, and spirit. Uh, We'll get into that another day. However, we do see this precedent for the reality that life came not when the body was shaped, but when the soul or the spirit was put into a man. And so God commands Ezekiel in verse 9. Notice what he says. Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So Ezekiel prophesied to the wind, and these bodies stood upon their feet. Look at verse 10. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. You'll notice here that the word wind in the Hebrew is the word ruach. Ruach is a word that literally means breath or wind, oftentimes also translated spirit. This is a word that comes up several times in the Old Testament. To be precise, it comes up 348 times in the Old Testament. It's often translated wind. Sometimes it's translated spirit of the Lord. Sometimes it's translated the breath of life. It is not the word that we see in Genesis chapter 2, breath of life, but it is the word that we see in Genesis chapter 6 that says breath of life when we consider Noah and God saying that, that he will destroy everything um, that within which is the breath of life. It's this word ruach. Uh, That's Genesis chapter 6, verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh wherein is, here it is, the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. It's a word that is regularly used to describe the workings, the mighty workings of God. It's the same word that was used in, in the book of Exodus. When the, Lord, when the Lord sent a wind to part the Red Sea, you recall that that wind came and it was a mighty east wind. It was this word, ruach. It's the same word that's used when God sent a wind, an east wind again, to bring quail when the nation of Israel murmured and the Lord said, I will feed you meat tonight. And He sent quail and quail fell in the camp. It was that Ruach, that wind that brought those quail. So it does have the idea of some working of God. It's not just your standard wind. It's not just a a light breeze blowing off of the Mediterranean Sea or off of the Dead Sea. We're talking about the Lord at work. might mean breath. It might mean spirit. It might mean wind. It's the same concept. Now, as we translate this concept of the Lord working through this, this wind or an idea of through the wind, um, I remind you that both in Hebrew and in Greek, the, the word that, that designates the Holy Spirit is the word for breath or for wind. In Greek, it's pneuma. In the Hebrew, it's ruach. Both of them have the idea of a breath or a wind. So it is a common analogy for the Holy Spirit. And this should not surprise us because we see such analogy used several times in the New Testament. Recall in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, the 120 are in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And on the day of Pentecost, the Scriptures tell us, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And so it was through the sound of a mighty rushing wind that the Holy Spirit first fell upon that 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. We also read about it in John chapter 3 today. We'll come to that in just a little bit. Jesus Christ again likens the Holy Spirit to a wind. As the wind, uh, He says, as the wind um, comes and goes and you know not from whence it came or where it goes, so is the working of the Holy Spirit. So this concept of wind is not foreign 
to the working of God in Scripture? And is it not appropriate that as these dry bones are laying there and then they receive the sinews and the tendons and the muscles and the flesh, that Ezekiel would prophesy to the wind and the wind would be that which brings life? Because we know from the Scripture that the Spirit brings life. God had Ezekiel prophesy to this wind because God was about to do a work. And that work necessitated the bringing to life of an inanimate object. And that is done through the Spirit of God. He was going to enliven them from the dead. And notice verse 11. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. In verses 11 through 14, what God is doing is explaining this vision. He tells Ezekiel that the bones are indeed Israel. And do take note of the word whole there. We see that word become very important in the second half of this chapter as God speaks of who it is that will be enlivened by the Spirit of God. In verse 11, God seems to indicate that the reason for this vision was the discouragement of the godly in Israel. Look at the second half of that verse. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Recall that this was the prophecy or this was the vision that Ezekiel had seen just after the word was given that Jerusalem had fallen. That the temple had been destroyed. And the godly in Israel were saying, that's it. The nation of Israel has not listened to the Lord. They have not done what is right. Our bones are dried. We are spiritually dead. That's what the godly in Israel thought. Have you had those thoughts about the Christian church any time in the last few months? Have you ever had that thought about the church as you look around today? That's it, God. There's really nothing left. We are a spiritually dead people. We're a mess. And God's message was, these bones shall live. The whole house of Israel are these bones. These bones shall live. Israel had not been annihilated physically, but they were dead spiritually. God says, these bones shall live. The godly in Israel saw themselves as their nation, as these dry bones without hope of life. And you know, to this day, Israel has remained in this state. They've remained as dry bones. In the time when Jesus walked upon the earth, remember these words that He said to Israel in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, whited tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Jesus said, Pharisees, you are like those who are buried in a beautiful tomb. The tomb is lovely. It's made up all nice. It's white. It's pure. But regardless of how beautiful you make the outside of a tomb of a sepulcher, it's still full of nothing but dead men's bones. That's you, Pharisees. You look beautiful on the outside. Spiritually speaking, from a, from a, a, a religious, should we say, perspective, you look great religiously. But inside, you're nothing but dead men's bones. So Jesus declared at the time of the Pharisees and Sadducees, look, the nation is still a bunch of dead men's bones. They need to be revived. They need a supernatural enlivening of their dead men's bones. A supernatural quickening of their spirits through God's Holy Spirit. And notice what he says in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Now to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my Spirit in you and ye shall live. And I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. God will take the bones and 
enliven them again. Give them flesh. Give them skin. Make them again into God's people and then breathe into them life. He won't just remake the body. He will remake the spirit. Verse 14, he says, And I will put my spirit within you, and ye shall live. We saw this just last week, did we not? In the words of chapter 36, that He would give them a new heart. That He would give them a new spirit. That He would take away their heart of stone and He would give them a heart of flesh. That He would soften them to God's Word. And when God accomplishes all this for His people, when God takes the dead bones of an outward and false religion and enlivens it with the Holy Spirit of God and true spiritual life, God says that they will know that these bones, the nation of Israel, will know that He is the Lord. Well, there's a second message that God gives to Israel, and it's, it's founded upon the first. second message begins in verse 15. Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it, for Judah. Take the, excuse me, and for the children of Israel, his companion. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. God tells Ezekiel to take a stick and to write upon that stick for Judah and the children of Israel, his companions. And then he was to take a second stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. God then told Ezekiel to join those sticks together in his hand in front of the people. And when he did so, God says, those two sticks will become one stick in your hand. Now, just for reference and for your edification this evening, if you were ever to be talking with a Mormon and this passage were to come up, they have a very unique interpretation of this passage. They would tell you that the sticks of this prophecy validate the Book of Mormon. They would tell you that the stick of Judah refers to the Bible and the stick of Ephraim refers to the Book of Mormon. And so God was prophesying here that over the course of time, the Book of Mormon and the Bible would be merged into the whole truth of God. It does not even take careful study of the Bible to invalidate this interpretation. All it takes is reading the next few verses, really, to invalidate their interpretation. It's kind of ridiculous, in fact, but you might hear it. And so, if you ever do come across that, know that you've heard it before, and know that it's very easy to refute through just a little bit of contextual study. So let's look at this interpretation together. Scriptures tell us in verse 18, And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by this? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them, in, put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. So when Ezekiel performs this miracle, the people are going to ask him the meaning. Ezekiel's been doing miracles for years. He's been showing signs for years. And people have always asked the meaning. Well, this one is a little bit more miraculous than a typical sign. Usually the signs are somewhat physical. Ezekiel making a model of Israel and putting a pan between him and laying on his side and then kicking the model into pieces and um, all of those sorts of things. His wife dying and him not mourning, him shaving his head, him sneaking out in the middle of the night and digging under the wall. All of those things, they were simply signs. But here God was actually going to do a miracle through Ezekiel. Ezekiel was going to take two sticks. He was going to say, this is Judah, this is Israel, this is the southern kingdom, this is the northern kingdom. Bam! And it was going to become one stick. And it wasn't going to be two sticks anymore. And the Lord was going to do this physical sign and the people were going to say, what do you mean by this sign? And the meaning was that the southern tribes of Judah 
and the northern tribes of what God says here as Ephraim, which we would understand to be the northern tribes of Israel, will one day become one kingdom again before the Lord. This is a promise not just of the regathering of the people of Israel, but a literal rejoining of the kingdom of Israel before it had divided in the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. God details His sovereign plan in verses 20 through 23. He says, And the sticks whereupon thou writest shall be in thine hand before thine eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take all the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king of them all. And they shall no more there be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all, neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. They will indeed become one nation again with one king. But this nation is also described as being a nation that will be completely righteous. No more idols. No more uncleanness. No more transgression. They will be clean. They will be God's people. And God will be their God. We talked last week about the time in which this stony heart of Israel would be made flesh. We talked about this time where there would be one king in Israel, where there would be peace in the land, where there would be prosperity, where there would be fruitfulness. And we recognize that there's only one time in the history of God's plan as He has revealed it to us that this happens. And that is the millennial kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the only time where there will be such peace and prosperity in the land. This is the only time where there will be uh, such fruitfulness in the land of Israel. This will be the only time where there will not be war and contention when Jesus Christ rules with a rod of iron. We recognize this time when Judah and Ephraim will finally be brought back together to be the Millennial Kingdom. We're going to talk after our mini-series coming up here on the family. We're going to talk about the Millennial Kingdom in Ezekiel 40-48. through And then we're going to focus in on prophecy for a couple of weeks. And when we do that, Lord willing, some of these pieces will be put together. And because you are familiar with Ezekiel, and for those of you that were here for our Daniel series, uh, being familiar with Daniel and Ezekiel makes you very familiar with God's plan for the end times. As a matter of fact, Daniel and Ezekiel comprise a vast portion of what we understand about end times prophecy. And if there's any doubt as to when it will happen, verse 24 and following will focus in on the king that will reign over this new and regathered Israel. Verse 24 says, And David my servant shall be king over them, and they, shall, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. God's focus shifts in verse 24 from the combined kingdom of Israel to the one king that shall rule over them. We spoke briefly in Ezekiel 34 about the possibility of the shepherd king being either Christ, as taken literally, remember the good shepherd, or as David, the resurrected king. And we mentioned at that time that it is likely that God was referencing, of course, Jesus as the Good Shepherd, the King of Israel, and then the physical resurrected David as the Prince. Because in Ezekiel 34, David is called the Prince. And we talked about how, typically speaking, earthly rulers, those that are serving under a spiritual head, were called the Prince. You had the Prince of Tyre ruling as the, the physical King of Tyre, and the actual king of Tyre in God's referencing was Satan. We talked about the princes of Israel. God speaking to the various kings, Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim. And these, these kings of Israel being referenced as the princes in Israel because in fact, the king over Israel was intended to be God. And so God saw the spiritual 
and he saw the physical, and he often called the greatest leader of the physical realm the prince. And here we see David again referenced as the prince of Israel. And it does indeed seem unlikely that God would call His Son Jesus Christ, having died on the cross, risen from the grave, sitting at the right hand of the Father, being given the kingdom, seems unlikely that Jesus would have been referenced as a prince instead of as a king. So that is why we um, would perhaps interpret it that way. There are many good men that would believe this to be Jesus Christ Himself, and I have no argument with them specifically. So the use of David as a prince in this passage seems to indicate that while the messianic son of David will be the shepherd, will be the one to rule as king, the resurrected king David will serve as the divinely appointed under-shepherd in order to lead God's people. And we'll see this again in chapters 40-48 through as there is a king on the throne in the temple and then a prince that comes and leads the people in worship of this king every day, and that prince is called David. God will be their shepherd. God's son Jesus will rule as their king. And the prince, David, will shepherd as the under-shepherd of Christ. So the kingdom will be united. Look with me as we finish in verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. So the kingdoms, the divided kingdom will be united once again. They will be united under one king. And then God says that He will make a covenant of peace with them forever. A promise that fulfills every expectation of God for Israel since the days of Abraham. So the dead men's bones will indeed come together. As Jesus Christ walked upon the earth, He said, Pharisees and Sadducees, you are a whited sepulcher with dead men's bones. In the days of Ezekiel, Israel was dead men's bones. In the days of Christ, Israel was dead men's bones. Today, Israel are dead men's bones. But there's coming a day when these bones will come together, when they will be given flesh, when they will be given life. And this is what we see happening as God promises that He shall tabernacle with them. Verse 27, My tabernacle shall be with them. Jesus Christ declared in John 14.6 that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And they will reside with Christ for all of eternity. But more than that, God promises in verse 27 that His tabernacle shall be with them. Literally, that God will dwell. That's what that word tabernacle means. God will dwell with them. This was a promise that was made in Exodus 29 verse 45. And it was a promise that is completely fulfilled in Christ. Spiritually, it's fulfilled through salvation as Christ dwells in our hearts. Consider 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Paul says, What agreement hath the temple of God, that's speaking of us, with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, not with them, in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God and they shall be My people. We are the temple of the living God. Literally, God is tabernacling in us. And yet we know as well that He will make His tabernacle with the nation as well. Fulfilled physically as Christ dwells as King in the temple of God in the Millennial Kingdom. And on that day, verse 28 tells us, the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify, that I have set Israel apart when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. Ever. On that day, the heathen will know that there is indeed something special about Israel, that they are my people. Let's apply as we close this evening. Two points as we close. Point number one, God can make dry bones living flesh. 
Point number two, God can take that which is scattered, that which is broken, and make it whole. There are many lessons that we have learned here about the physical nation of Israel. Within its context, we have learned those lessons. We have learned God's plan for Israel. We have learned that He intends to to bring Israel to spiritual life. The physical nation of Israel, He intends to enliven them one day. We have learned that He intends to unite the scattered people again one day. We've learned these lessons about Israel. But we also see some important principles concerning the nature of God Himself. We see first of all that God can take that which is dead and He can make it alive. God is in the business of making that which is dead come alive. We are born dead in trespasses and sins, we said at the beginning of our message. But consider what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says. And you hath He, Christ, quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. And now, if you are a born-again believer, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you have placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you have been changed from death into life. The dry bones that were your spirit before God now are living and breathing and a spirit full of life purchased through Christ. You are alive. And how is it that this happened? Well, I just told you. But Ephesians chapter 2 tells us as well, verse 8 and 9. How is it that you have been quickened? Well, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of work, lest any man should boast. You were saved by grace through faith, and through this gift of God, you have been made alive. Jesus Christ likened His Holy Spirit to a wind in John chapter 3, verse 8, as we read already. And He said in Acts 2, 2, and suddenly there came a sound as a mighty rushing wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting as the Holy Spirit filled the people there in Acts. John 3, 8 says this, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born. Of the Spirit. The quickening of the Spirit in our lives at the moment of salvation is likened unto that which took place at Pentecost. It's likened unto that which Jesus Christ mentions in John 3 of the wind blowing where it listeth. The quickening of the Spirit in our lives is the same making alive that God promises will happen to Israel when they finally recognize their Messiah and are ushered into newness of life through belief on His name. God can make dry bones, living flesh. But you know, the idea of spiritual life is not just a salvation thing. See, because the Bible tells us that we can submit ourselves again into dead works, can't we? We can take that which is alive in us, the Spirit of God, and we can, we can um, quench the Spirit and grieve the Spirit of God which is in us, that part of us that is indeed alive so that our body can do dead works, can sin in the midst of our spirit being alive in Christ. And when we do so, we're still believers. We do not snuff out the life that is in us. We quench it. We grieve it. We do not annihilate it. We don't have to get saved again when we've sinned. We don't fall out of salvation But what we have done is willingly placed ourselves under sin again. And we serve sin even though we are alive in the Spirit. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 20 through 23. For when we were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become a servant to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are the servants of the true and living God. But we can again place ourselves under death. Under sin. Not unto hell and loss of salvation, but unto dead works and loss of reward. And when we do so, 
when we willingly place ourselves there again, we become servants of the dead bones, even though God has made us living flesh. Living flesh serving dead bones. It's kind of a silly thought, isn't it? Living flesh serving dead bones. Remember what Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 tell us. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So your spirit is alive, but your body is dead to sin. You still have a flesh, right? You still have a sin nature that you are warring against. But the Scriptures tell us that because within you is the Spirit of the living God that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, that raised Him up not just spiritually as some would try to teach us, but that there was a physical, bodily resurrection from the grave. That the dead body of Jesus Christ was raised into newness of life. That because the Spirit of God has the power to do such a thing, the Spirit of God can also take the Spirit which is... The, the, the life which is in you through Him, and He can make your body just as alive under Christ as your spirit. And so on any given day, you have the ability to please God in your body, not just in your spirit, as you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit of God that lives within you. And so your body can do right. Your body can be enlivened. Your body doesn't have to just be dead men's bones your body can be just as alive in the Spirit as your spirit which was made alive when you were born again. God can make the dry bones living flesh. You know, perhaps you find yourself today as a believer, but a dry-boned believer. Perhaps you are saved, but you've allowed your bones to metaphorically dry out a little bit. You are submitted to the dead works of the flesh. There's a God that can take those dry bones and make them alive. There's a God that can revive you to make you living flesh once again so that you can please and serve God and not serve the deadness of sin. God can make dry bones living flesh. Second, And finally, as we apply this evening, God can take that which is scattered and make it whole. The story of Israel from the days of Rehoboam even unto today has been a story of alienation and separation. The people have been alienated from their God. The people have also been alienated from each other. But there's coming a day when God's people will be restored back to each other and to the living God. And we understand that God is in the business of taking that which was destroyed and making it beautiful once again. God is in the business of taking that which is scattered and gathering it again. God is in the business of taking that which is broken and healing it once again. God can take that shattered life and make it whole through His Word. God can take that ruined relationship and heal it through His Word. God can take your failures and make them victories through His Word. We've all experienced it, haven't we? We've experienced how God can take a total mess and turn it into something beautiful for Him. And take note that the essential element of God's restoration lives in His Word. There's no amount of self-effort. There's no amount of self-determination. There's no amount of self-esteem that will truly mend the broken or restore the sinful. There's no amount of worldly wisdom that will solve the problems that the world faces. When Ezekiel prophesied to the wind, the Spirit of God came and made those bones alive. When Ezekiel placed those sticks together, it was the power of God who turned those two sticks into one stick. And when God's people are finally restored to Him, it will be the Spirit of God who will give them new hearts and bind them in an everlasting covenant of salvation. Where God is at work, there is completion. There is wholeness. There is healing. And is it any wonder that as Paul exhorts the people in 1 Corinthians, as Paul exhorts the people in Philippians, as Paul exhorts throughout the New Testament the people unto unity, he exhorts them unto unity in Christ. 
See, because where there is a group of people that are walking in the oneness of the Spirit, it's because they are submitted to the Word of God. When there is a husband and a wife that have a proper relationship, it's because there is submission to the Word of God. When there is a life that had been lost to sin or lost to some physical issue, a relationship problem, an abuse situation, when there is healing, it is found through the Word of God. The Word of God mends broken hearts, heals broken lives, restores the scattered back to whole. Where man is at work, what do you find? Selfishness, pride, destruction. You remember the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34 and the consequences of the false shepherds in Israel? The sheep were scattered and devoured by the beasts. God says, I will regather you and protect you and make you whole once again. That's the God that we serve, folks. People come to you and they need help. There's no better place you can take them than this book. People need their lives restored. I can tell you Dr. Phil's not going to do it for them. This is where restoration and healing is found. So how are you doing this evening? On a day-to-day basis, is your body, much less your spirit, living, quickened? Or are you just a bunch of dry bones? Have you as a believer allowed your bones to dry out to sin? Are you even a believer? Are you just dead men's bones? Have you never even accepted Christ as your Savior? Does your life have a mess in it? Something that's scattered? Something that's broken and needs to be mended? God is a God that regathers the scattered. God is a God that restores the broken. May God help us today through His Holy Spirit to be men and women that are wholly submitted to the Word of God so that God can quicken us, can enliven us, can make us alive unto His glory and our best good. Let's pray together.